and welcome to City Legal Livestream. It's great to have you with us. My name's Peter Wrench. Uh, the City Legal community exists to consider the bigger questions of life, and we do that with uh, silks and suits right around the cities of Australia, and we do it by looking at the Bible and the answers that we find therein. Uh, we're incredibly privileged to have with us uh, today again, uh, Dr. Peter Jensen. Um, for those uh, who are new to uh, our group, welcome, a special welcome to you. And the format's going to be a short talk followed by a Q&A. Um, and uh, as I said, uh, Dr. Peter Jensen is with us again today. He was the uh, former principal of Moore College in Sydney and was also the Archbishop of Sydney. And I'm going to hand over to him now, but uh, I believe he's going to begin by reading from a section in the second book of the Old Testament, the book of Exodus. So that's going to come up on your screen in a moment or, or if you'd like you can follow the link that's in the chat I've posted in the chat function just at the below your screen and uh, just know that um, you can ask questions at any time by using the chat function so uh, over to you Peter. Well thanks very much Peter and uh, I'm going to pray first because I found this a very difficult passage this week <laughs> and I think we need help so let me pray. Uh, Father God, we thank you for your word and we pray that by the power of your spirit you will be our teacher and that we will be obedient with faithful hearts. For Christ our Saviour's sake. Amen. The passage uh, is uh, from the Ten Commandments and it's the second commandment, generally counted as the second. You shall not make to yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. And then next week's, talk is there as well you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain well now let's turn to this uh, as I say I have found rather difficult uh, passage as far as I know I've never possessed an idol uh, this is not a society in which idols are evident although there are some of course uh, sometimes when you go to holiday houses, they're filled with uh, idols, uh, a, a sort of um, statutory, this sort of thing. But basically, we live in a what you may call an idol-free community. So I'm going to say, I'm going to begin this week with a question and move on to two observations, three principles, and finish with a challenge. So that's the structure. First of all, a question, two observations, three principles, and a challenge. Are you ready? So first of all, the question is this. How do you worship? You see, last week in the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, uh, we heard who you should worship. That is the fundamental commandment. From that commandment, all else flows. If you have determined to worship this God, the God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and brought you to salvation, if you are determined to worship this creator, redeemer God, then you have committed yourself to him. That's who you are going to worship. 
and the essence of worship, what worship is, is trust. You worship by trusting this great God. In other words, by faith, by entrusting yourself to him. And then comes the obedience that flows out of faith, out of trust, in which you serve this God. But the idea of worship contains at its very heart the idea of service. And so this God who has revealed himself to us, this God is the God that we should worship exclusively by entrusting ourselves to him and serving him with all our heart, with all our mind, with all our strength, for he is our God. Now, to those who heard this first, I guess it would have been fairly obvious that you should then make an image of the God, that you should uh, create some sort of uh, material representation of the God, for that is how they had learned that the gods were to be worshipped. And so immediately comes the second commandment, uh, you shall not make to yourself a carved image or the likeness of anything in the heavens above and so forth. Two observations. The first one about faith. Sometimes we speak about a, a, a man or woman of faith and uh, we are more or less admiring them because we say that that's a person of great faith. But the thing about faith is that it doesn't draw attention to itself. Uh, you can have complete faith in something that is not true um, and this not be praiseworthy in the slightest. Or you can have small faith, like a, a, a mustard seed of faith in the truth, and that is real faith. For the difference between faith and superstition is not the subjective, it's not the inner feeling, it's not the experience. Superstition is faith. The difference between faith and superstition is what you have your faith in. Uh, this week I, I heard of someone in the United States had held up a big sign saying, you know, we don't have to fear the, the virus, God is with us. Uh, so let us go out. We are confident that we're not going to get sick with the virus because God is with us. That's called superstition. Uh, there is no word from God which says you are perfectly safe from this virus. Uh, what the Lord expects of us is that we act with wisdom and common sense in the world in which he has provided. So that is, it sounds like wonderful faith. But in fact, it's superstition. For the faith which God seeks from us is faith in him, and in particular, of course, faith in his word. For the key way in which God has revealed himself to us is through his word. And so what he says to us is, trust me, trust what I am saying to you. And in that way, you will have faith even a mustard seed of faith, if it is directed in the right direction, can move mountains. That's the first observation. The second observation is uh, the events that surrounded this giving of the Ten Commandments. Uh, for um, uh, they hear what the Ten Commandments are, and they hear a bit more about the law, what I called last week the case law, 
And then the people uh, go through a, a sort of a ceremony recorded in chapter 24, in which they say, all that the Lord has said, we will do and be obedient. And so they respond to their side of the covenant by entrusting themselves to the living God, we will be obedient. Moses then goes up the mountains to receive the Ten Commandments in the uh, written form. And while he is away, as you uh, no doubt aware, uh, the people get tired of his absence and demand from the high priest that he creates an idol. And so uh, while he is away, famously, while Moses is away, famously, they create the golden calf. And they worship the golden calf. Now, the thing to notice about here is uh, two things. First of all, that uh, almost certainly the golden calf was meant to uh, portray God, the Lord. This was the God who had brought them out of Egypt. That's what they thought. That's who they thought they were worshipping with the golden calf or perhaps the golden bull, in fact. The second thing to observe is that not untypically with the worship that was typical of those days, once they had begun to worship the golden calf, uh, all inhibitions dropped away. And what followed was an orgy, an orgy of drinking and sexual license, uh, which was oft times connected, in fact, with the sort of idolatry of the day. And of course, uh, both Moses and God uh, had some words to say about this. What we learn from this is that we approach God on his terms, not on our terms. Our business is not to invent ways to approach God out of the imagination of our own hearts. Imagination, interestingly. We don't approach God on our terms, but on his terms. Thank you very much. This makes sense because he is God. As I heard uh, once uh, uh, some uh, uh, two clergy talking from different denominations, and one says to the other, you worship God in your way, and I'll worship him in his, which I think is a rather neat way of putting the point. <laughs> For that is our business, not to worship God in our way, but to worship God in his way. One question, how to worship. Two observations, faith that does anything is faith in the truth, not mere faith in itself, which is a fairly unimportant thing in itself. And then the failure of the people immediately upon receiving the commandments and particularly their failure in regard to how they shall worship this God by the creation of the golden calf. Now, having said that, I'm now going to come to what you may call uh, three, what I've called three principles of operation here. Um, and they are as follows. As we unpack this commandment, we see, first of all, no portrait. I've used the word portrait because it begins with P and all three C things begin with P and it was the best one I could come up with. No portraiture of God. 
God forbids all attempts to portray him. God is one. Unlike the gods of the nations, they believed in many, many, many gods. He revealed himself as the one true God. They believed in the gods of the natural forces. He revealed himself as the creator of all natural forces. They believed in a world divided up between the gods. They believed in a world in which you could trespass into the, into the territory of another god. They believed in a world in which the gods fought with each other. They believed in a world, indeed, a world which was a world of fear, for you could never be sure which god you were offending or which person you were offending, and he may use the gods against you. This is a world of fear. God reveals himself as the one God. In place of the many competing wills, we are dealing with one will, one person who rules the world. Instead of continually asking ourselves, why did that happen? Was it that I had offended this God? Why did that happen? Has someone put a spell on me? we come to the extraordinary situation of saying, no, we're only dealing with one person, one God, and one will. We may not know why he has willed this to happen, but we do know that it is according to his will, and he is a good God. This revelation in itself is gospel. This revelation itself is one of the most startling, original, extraordinary things that humankind has ever come up with, except that we didn't come up with it. It was revealed to us. And it makes, where it, where it triumphs, it makes a huge difference. It actually paves the way, as I think I may have mentioned last week, uh, for the world in which we live, in the world of science and the world in which we are not fearful. So he forbids all portraits of himself because you cannot make a portrait of such a God. And any portrait that you make of such a God is bound to be thoroughly misleading. You cannot represent him as a picture. You cannot represent him as a statue. To do so would be to, to put him into that form when he is spirit when he is without form. And so he says, don't look to statues or pictures of me. Listen to my words. That is the way in which we will relate to each other. No portraits. Now, it doesn't mean that uh, all portraiture, all statues are banned. Uh, he is talking here particularly in regard to worship. You shall not make to yourself any carved image. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. Uh, later on, there is uh, God uh, tells them to make a bronze snake. Later on, he uh, endorses the construction of cherubim. Later on, there are, there are pomegranates portrayed on various. It's it, it not that there is to be no art. It is to be that there is no portraiture of God which you use in worship. That, I think, is the way that this commandment goes. 
First of all, then, no portrait. Second, no presence. But what were these idols? Uh, people actually made the idol. Did they think they were making their own god? Uh, no. As far as I can understand, the idols were means, shall we say, of communication. You made an idol, and it was an invitation to one of the gods, the god of thunderstorms, for example, uh, to come and dwell within the idol uh, so that you may communicate. Not dwell all the time in the idol, but become a presence with this. Uh, so that you may be in the presence of this God through the form which has been created for this God. It would become a center of worship. And of course, being, the, being that which is inhabited by the God, it will become something precious, something really significant, um, something that you may not touch easily, something in the presence of whom you bow down. And so the, the uh, idols of the nations were means by which they believed they could come into the very presence of the God that they were talking about. Of course, there are many gods, but the God that they were talking about, he would present himself within this form. And therefore, they would be in the presence of God. To which God says, you are always in my presence. I am always in your presence. Listen to me. Trust me. Do my will. And in this way, you will truly worship the living God. It's a revolution. Extraordinary moment. No portrait, no presence. And then finally, no power. For the idols, the idols of the nations were regarded as a source of power. Uh, the actual idol itself inhabited by that spirit, connected to the spirits around you, was a way in which if you could, if you could worship the idol, perhaps give the idol incense, give the idol food, uh, speak to the idol. If you could do these things, then this would bring your chaotic world into some sort of order. Not total, because no idol, no god had complete control, but some way of accessing power. Hence, if you could think about it, um, it comes down to us. I, I said we're not so familiar with this world, uh, at least not here. If you go to other parts of the world, they're very familiar. But um, uh, I remember being in a taxi once and, uh, uh, and I was struck by the way the man drove, which was extraordinarily careless. And then I realized that hanging from the, uh, the, the, the mirror, uh, there was a lucky charm. And I thought, yes, this guy is driving like this because he trusts the lucky charm. He's got a talisman there. He's got a, he's got a charm. And you may know that for many people, possession of an object, possession of something which they touch and feel perhaps, possession of something that they really want to have with them, gives them that sense of power, that sense of being able to ward off the evil of this world. 
and be able to uh, live in a world of chaos. You've probably come across this in one way or another, that people do believe in luck, they do believe in charms, they do believe in talismans. Of course, the God whom we are talking about here is the God of whose will rules the world. He is described here as a jealous God. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God. Jealousy is not a virtue that we think much of these days as a virtue, but the word he is speaking of here, the jealousy of God, is the jealousy of husband, of wife, uh, a jealousy for their relationship. God, in this moment, is entering into this special relationship with this people. He wishes them to worship him alone, for he is the true God. By bringing the golden calf in, they were betraying the marriage between God and his people. Frequently in both Old and New Testament, the relationship between God and his people is portrayed as marriage. And the idea of jealousy, the original idea of jealousy, is that, is that anger that you legitimately feel when your marriage is, brought, is, is betrayed when some intruder comes into your marriage. And God said, I am a jealous God. I am jealous for you and jealous for this relationship. And if you do uh, break this law, then uh, this, the consequences will be known down through the generations. Now, he's not saying here that uh, every generation will therefore bear the consequences of the breach of the first and innocent people will suffer. He denies that, Ezekiel chapter 18. But nonetheless, it is true, isn't it? That when you make decisions, it impacts the generations that follow. And when you make your decision against God, you will, humanly speaking, impact the generations that follow. But he says remarkably two or three generations where the contrast is between his justice and his mercy, if you like, where thousands of generations, his mercy is like an ocean. His love is unbounding. Yes, there will be consequences. But also remember the grace of God and the way in which he draws people into his own fellowship. And so I come to the challenge, which is about you and me. In the New Testament, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 5, uh, it says to uh, eschew idolatry, which is covetousness which is an extraordinary translation of the idea of idolatry. Uh, Ezekiel at one point speaks about the idols of the heart. In other words, yes, there are the idols which are actually can be lifted and placed and so forth and so on. But more significant than that are the idols that possess the heart of man. Paul tells us this is covetous. And he likens it to greed and to lust, those overpowering emotions, if you like, those overpowering experiences that we have, which are our way of trying to control the world around us. 
and exploit it for our own advantage. And the Lord God says, you shall worship me with all your heart, soul, strength and mind. You shall love me. You shall put me first. And what we're being told here is that, yes, even we modern men and women who inhabit the great office blocks and walk the streets of our great cities, yes, we too can be just as idolatrous as the people of Israel when we allow our hearts to be inhabited by greed, by lust, when we allow our hearts to be inhabited by those things which we think are going to enable us to rule the world. And we too have our idols. We too, although outwardly we may worship the one true God, inwardly we may be very far from him indeed. And so my challenge is the same as my question. Uh, you've told me, I guess, who you worship. The question is, how do you worship him? Do you truly worship him by trusting yourself to him and obeying him through his word? Or do you have, have you allowed the idols to enter your heart? And are you worshipping not the living God, but the idols of this age? Amen. Uh, thank you very much, Peter. Uh, we've got a number of questions that are pouring in already. Uh, perhaps I can start with one that we received from the website during the week. Uh, question is, since Acts 15.20, instructions were for the inclusion of the Gentiles, how are we to consider the Jewish believers with regard to keeping the law of Moses? Thank you. This particularly applies to some of the things that I was talking about last week about the nature of the law. Um, my way of answering this is, a, this is a question which requires, of course, there are all these questions, a great deal of thought and, and, um, and wisdom, but it seems to me that the following applies. Uh, when, uh, praise God, a, uh, a person from the Jewish faith becomes a Christian and in a sense fulfills the promises of God. When that happens, that person, uh, is, I believe, entirely free from the Jewish law, the law of the old covenant, except its moral law, of course, which we're all bound to keep, uh, is entirely free and may live, if you like, as a Gentile. Uh, secondly, I would say uh, this is not absolutely necessary. Uh, and indeed, there may well be elements of that Jewish cultural um, inheritance uh, founded in Old Testament scripture which is perfectly right for a, a Jewish believer to continue on with, should they so wish. And particularly as it will help keep them related to other uh, Jewish believers. Uh, thirdly, however, I would say um, that this of course cannot be regarded as any way a means of salvation, because the law is not a way of salvation, and fourthly, of course, whatever law you adopt, it's not going to be the whole law in any case. I take it we're not going back to the complete law of the Old Testament, uh, sacrifice and all those things in any case. So uh, not necessary, but in some ways possible. 
Okay, thank you. Um, Peter, I've got one question here and before I hand over to you, because I think you've got a number of questions on your screen. Question here is, um, should we I make don't. any... You don't have any questions? Okay, well, I've got a number here that I can... Thank you. To you. Um, <clears throat> we'll start with this one. Uh, why do you think this commandment is so long compared to the rest of the commandments? <laughs> yes, uh, because of its sheer importance. Um, I, I, I read a lot of books on this during the week. One of the, one of the best articles I read on this pointed out how the, in, how the battle against idolatry dominates almost every page of the Old Testament, uh, and the New for that matter. But it was, it was the battle of all battles uh, because uh, idolatry is so endemic to human nature, but it was also these outward forms of idolatry were so, so much the natural way of people everywhere to do things that to break this, um, it, it was almost unthinkable for people to be able to do it. And so I think the reason why this command, I love the first commandment, it's so fundamental. But the second commandment is artillery aimed at the greatest enemy. Okay, thank you. Uh, we've got a question here about the incarnation. Uh, what, what impact does the incarnation have on God's command not to worship an image? A follow-up, hasn't he now provided an image of himself in Jesus? Yes. Uh, now, you need to go back further because you can say, hasn't he provided an image of himself in you? Well, we are all made in the image of God. Now, in Genesis 1, where uh, this word is used, the image of God is used, uh, the idea there is that we are in the image of God, not in the sense of looking like God, but rather in the function that we perform, namely of ruling the world. We've been set up under God and under the word of God to rule this world and to take care of it, etc., etc. Jesus, uh, Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, is the image of God. Now, it doesn't mean that he looks like God, so to speak. I sometimes wonder, but we shouldn't wonder what Jesus actually looked like. He might have been five foot two, excuse me, using the old terms, but, you know, he might have been a midget and he may have had bad teeth. We don't know. He may have st stared out like I do, wondering what was out there. We, we, he, who knows what Jesus actually looked like? Nobody does. Interesting, isn't it? We are given no description of the physical appearance of Jesus at all. But we are told that he is the image of God, that he is, the, he is God's king. For image carries with it the connotation of royalty, of regal, of the king, of the one who rules. And so he is the image of God in the sense that he is now the one who is the king of God's kingdom. Uh, that other phrase in Colossians 1 tells the same story, doesn't it? He, he is the son of God. He is, he is the firstborn of God's creation. doesn't mean he was created in the sense that he came. He's not a God. But the firstborn, i.e., he is the prince. He is, he is the royalty in, in, uh, over God's creation. Okay, thank you. There's a, a, another question here uh, talking about our supposedly secular slash scientific age. 
uh, why are we seeing a return to idolatry, superstition, paganism? Are you, perhaps you might be talking about that a little bit next week, but what are your thoughts there? I hadn't thought of that for next week. Thank you, Pete. Um, yes, I think the answer is atheism. Uh, well, not the answer, but it is an answer. Um, when uh, when we, we've had the gospel of atheism poured into our years for the last 25 years by you-know-who and others, um, there's an atheist convention in Melbourne a few years ago. They've got 3,000 people at it. Mm. At the same time, uh, Church Missionary Society was having a convention at Katoomba with 3,000 people, but that wasn't reported in the Sydney Morning Herald at all, isn't it? Um, Is that surprising? Once atheism captures the uh, upper middle class, which is where it's, it's most successful with uh, school teachers. And, well, that's not upper middle. But anyhow, with, with the sort of humanistic doctors and teachers and that sort of thing. Once, once atheism succeeds amongst that sort of clan, um, uh, they succeed in denigrating Christianity. Once you have denigrated Christianity, people are not going to be content with atheism. People are born religious. They want to have something else. And so they will, they will invent their own gods. So it is inevitable that once atheism has any success at all, and once Christianity is treated like uh, as if it was completely wrong and so forth, the vacuum will be filled with spirituality and with paganism. You may be sure that the future, if Christianity goes into serious decline, that this world will be more religious than ever, and it will be religious with uh, paganism. Mm. Well, we've got time for one more question, uh, and there's a question here that relates to the latter part of your talk. Uh, is there an equivalence between physical statue idols and intangible idols, that is money, sex, power? Uh, yes, the latter is even more powerful, I think. Um, and it is interesting, isn't it, how frequently the idolatry of the old and, and Romans chapter one, where, where uh, the apostle says they suppress the knowledge of the true God and they give themselves to idols. And then flowing out of that is this great long um, uh, collection of human sinfulness that comes out of it as the idol worship does not satisfy the longings of the heart. Uh, it is a world of fear anxiety and apprehension and in which uh, people give themselves to experiences in which they try to try to control their world and to be in charge themselves so uh, the the actual danger of idolatry is what ezekiel said the idols of the heart um, the inward idols of which to which we are all prey um, now, that can be actually in forms of worship in church, for that matter. I mean, it's very interesting. Some of the things we do in church uh, may not bear scrutiny sometimes as to why we're doing it and what we're doing. Uh, it, too, can be superstitious. Mm. Mm. Well, thank you very much, Peter. Um, well, thank you, everyone, for joining us again this morning. Uh, we look forward to hearing Peter again next week speaking about God versus magic. So join us at the same time at the same place.